0: We have been in this series, The Emmaus Road, for several weeks. We've got several weeks left. But I hope you're getting something out of it. And I hope, my hope in this is that we recognize how important it is that we as believers know our Bibles. What is the foundation of our faith? It is the Bible. It's not experience. If it was experience, we'd we'd have nothing to ground everything on. Now, some of us had good experiences. Some of us had bad experiences. Some of us have had good experiences in church. Some of us have had bad experiences in church. And some of us have had both. And the bottom line is that we don't look to the church for the answers. We look to God. And where did God give us the answers? In his word. He gives us the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us into all truth. What is the foundation of truth? It's his word. And so it's important that we know that, and that's why we're doing this, is that I want us, as a body of believers, as Grace Church, as a witness, as a light, a city on a hill, to be able to look to the Word for the answers that we have. Because here's what's going to happen, folks, is that as things progress, the Spirit of God will move in this city, and He will begin to convict people's heart, and we have to be prepared. We have to be people of the Word who know where to take them. We're not giving our opinion, because our opinions will not set them free, it's the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that will set people free. Amen? So it's, it's important that we do this. And why we're doing this is we're finding Christ in the Old Testament. Because a popular notion today is that you've got the age of grace and you've got the monster God. You've got a God that just drops the hammer on people. They don't understand it. Like something, why was God so bipolar back in the Old Testament? These are questions that I've been asked by people who are not believers. Why was he so bipolar? It's like, he wasn't. What you have is a span of thousands of years versus a span of maybe a hundred. So you've got a big difference in that. But you also, if you study it, can see the grace inside of it. You can see the grace of God laying things out, giving lots of opportunities to repent before he brings judgment. You also see that the grace of God was prevalent from the very beginning. And you also see, because we bring in the New Testament, because it's one book, how people in the Old Testament came to God. It was by faith. They were accounted righteousness to them because of their faith. No different than you and I. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. The difference is, is that the door has been open for us as Gentile believers, which we are. We're Gentile. If you're not Jewish, you are Gentile. We, the door has been open to us because of the love of God. And now we walk into it. And as you said this morning, we are to, make, to do this to make the Jew jealous. The reason for that is because originally the Jew was originally supposed to make the rest of the world jealous by the blessings of God. We now walk in the blessings of God to make them jealous. God's chosen people to come back to Him, and it will happen. So, with all that being said, I'm getting off my soapbox, and we're going to get started on what we're talking about. Now, last week we started in Exodus. And Exodus has a lot of things that point to Christ that we don't look at, we don't think about, a lot of things. And so when you begin to look at this, there are things that are called types and shadows. Some of them are obvious, some of them are not. We talked about... um, the, it's just an example. Let's throw this one out there. The, the rock that followed them around and how the water came from that. And the symbolic nature of this is, one, that the rock was Christ according to Paul and that what that living water was. You know, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, He's saying, The water that I give you will be living water. Whoever drinks it will never thirst again. You know, if you're sitting there thinking that he's got a special kind of water, it's miracle spring water, and if you drink it and you send money to this preacher on TV, that all your problems go away. That's not what it's talking about. I think we all know that. It's pretty obvious. But it's talking about a symbolic nature of the power of the Holy Spirit and when He's inside of us. Today, we are going to focus on the tabernacle. Initially, I had hoped to be able to put all of this into one so we could keep things moving. It's impossible. The tabernacle has way, way too much. Now, what we need to understand about the tabernacle is that this is what God told Moses to build as a temporary place for God to reside and for the people to worship. Okay, This would be replaced later by the temple for the Jews. And that's where you hear it said later that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is pointing back because God resided here. So the tabernacle was a movable tent. And this is what God said to Moses and he gave him specific instructions. And it was very precise about the materials they were to use, the dimensions and how it was built. It was incredibly precise. You see this in the book of Exodus. It was starting around chapter 25 and it goes through, but you also see stuff in other books as well. So on one hand, the tabernacle itself was a visible expression of Israel's faith. They were building this so that the presence of God could be with them. This is one expression of it. But it represented the fundamental truth and conviction about God that He desires to live among His people. That's the initial creation. God created the heavens and earth. He did it so that He and the rest of His creation could live together. Because of sin, that all changed. It was separated. So you see this, but that's his desire. But it represented God's plan also to intervene into human history and fix what was broken. What got broken in Genesis 3, this is God coming back so he can tabernacle with his people. Okay, that's the term that's used. When Jesus came down and he came among us, it's really the Greek is he tabernacled among us, that he was there residing with us. So the tabernacle in and of itself is basically a microcosm of God's original intentions for creation. And the commitment and detail to this paints a picture of the coming Messiah that's going to take place. It provided a way for God to dwell with his people. And that is where Eden began with. That was initially that was the plan. That was what was going to happen. So let's look at the tabernacle and I've got some pictures here. Go ahead and put that up. Now this is would be considered an aerial view here and I even brought this up here for the laser pointer. I'm excited about this. Look at that. Isn't that fun? Okay. I easily distracted if you see me playing say something. But you see this broken down into three groups. Okay? So obviously outside of this would be where the people lived. And as you'll see in the book of Numbers, that each side had the different tribes on it. And we'll talk about that when we get there. This is the gate, okay? It's on the east side. That is significant, not for what we're talking about today, but for later on. But what you have in here is what they call the courtyard, okay? All this area here. You got the um, the altar here, this is the brazen altar. you got the brazen laver, which is water. We'll get there in a minute. And here is the first part. Now, this is all one building, but it's divided into two sections. This is called the holy place. And it's got the, uh, well, they call it the menorah, men- menor, but the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense, and we'll talk about that more. Then you have the veil. And then in here is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? That's the basics of this thing, is how it's broken down. Now, I will say this. This is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Jesus made that statement. I have tried to investigate as best I can this concept of the way, the truth, and the life. The best I can come up with in this idea is that this was a Jewish um, thing that they did, that they called the outer courtyard the way with the altar here, the truth with the water, and then you found the life because in here was the life of God and this bread represents life to them. Now, I will not say that dogmatically because I can't find good, strong sources, but it is at least something to consider and is something to think about. It's very interesting that when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. That would have spoke very loudly to a Jewish audience if that's 100% accurate. So I'm giving it to you as food for thought, um, but that's all I'm going to leave it, leave it as. So when we look at the courtyard, this is the main access to the tabernacle itself, okay? The tabernacle is this part right here. It's got this, this gate here on the east side, and so the priests would receive these offerings. They would bring in these sacrifices, the Israelites would, and the priests would receive them, and then they would bless the people. They would offer the sacrifices on this altar, these being the animals or whatever it was. And then the bronze labor would be where the priests could wash their hands and feet ceremonially. The holy place, as I just said, contained those three things, you know, but only the priests could come here. So in this place, anybody could be. The priests did the jobs, but only the priests could come in here. And so you've got those three things, which we'll talk about in more detail. Um, one of the things is, is this lamp, it would be very dark. And, and when I talk about the, uh, what was covering this thing, you'll understand it. But it would be very dark. This was the only source of light that was in there. And then the most holy place, only the high priest, which basically is the big dog, could go in there one time a year on the Day of Atonement, and that was it. And he had to go through a whole bunch of stuff to do it. But in here is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you ever saw Indiana Jones... That's what they're chasing, the Ark of the Covenant. They're trying to find it. Many people have claimed to they know where it is. Some say it's in Ethiopia. A guy named Ron Wyatt has claimed that he found it. Um, I think the Jews are claiming to possess it. I don't even know. Um, we don't know. We don't care. The Ark of the Covenant, as far as we're concerned, is irrelevant other than be pretty cool to see. So anyway, so this is it. So let's talk about this courtyard, this whole thing. Oh, go ahead and go back. We'll get there. You stay with me. I'll tell you when to switch. This courtyard here, this whole thing would be kind of considered the courtyard. But the whole thing in and of itself um, was 50 cubits by 100 cubits. And this is how God told him to lay it out specifically. Now, a cubit, depending on the measurement, they would go from your elbow to your finger. Most of the time they say it was 18 inches. It could be up to 24 inches. There's not a strong measurement. So estimates, it's 75 feet by 150 feet. That's what we're saying. So it's a big area. You know, it's not a small place. It'd be the size of a, a typical lot um, or maybe a double lot around here. I'm not sure exactly what, how big they are, but get that in your mind. It's a big place. So this took a lot of work. This was not done easily. And so there were 20 posts on each side, here and there on the long side, and 10 here. Now, you can't see them here because that's the gate, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But... God told them specific. He told them what fabric to use. And so these were made from fine twisted linen and they would put them on these, ho- or these silver hooks. They were made of solid silver. Okay? And so they would put them on there. They would hang them. So it's basically curtains hanging around the outside of this thing. Not exactly weather resistant, but they are in a desert. So probably doesn't matter as much. And the gate on the east, this east side here was, it was 20 cubits wide, so 30 feet roughly. And so inside the courtyard... You have this bronze altar, and then you have this brazen laver. So go ahead and go to that next picture. This altar was seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, which makes it square. Okay? It was hollow in the bottom. It had this, we assume this grate on top, it had some sort of thing. And they would put fire in the bottom, and that's how they would burn things. They'd have rings on it, and they'd put these poles through them. And they didn't stay there all the time, but they were available because the tabernacle was meant to be mobile. It was moved. They moved it all over the desert as as they went. And so what would happen is that a priest, or somebody would bring a sacrifice, the priest would inspect it. And he had to inspect it to make sure it had what? No flaws, nothing wrong. It had to be perfect. And once he did that, they, he put his approval on it, they, the one, whoever brought it would actually lift the animal up onto this altar. Now, imagine if it was like a cow, okay? It was a lot of work. I mean, this is, they did not have hydraulic systems or uh, maybe they built a ramp, I don't know. But I mean, it would be heavy, whatever that they were, they were doing. And so what would happen is that the individual and the priest would help, they would bind the legs of this animal to these horns. You see these horns kind of hanging off the side? The picture's a little fuzzy, but um, those were used to tie the animals to. Now, those horns are significant because they symbolize power. And you'll see them in other different things. And the horns the horn symbolize God's power over life and death and were points where the blood sacrifice would be sprinkled. So after he was sacrificed to the animal, they would do this. Why? Because this animal was representing the individual. And this was God's power holding down what was being sacrificed. So whoever brought the sacrifice, the individual would, after he's up there, after he's tied, he would put his hands on the animal's head while the priest sacrificed it. This would allow the the person, the Israelite, to identify with the animal that was being sacrificed. It seems kind of Weird, and it is weird to us because we don't have a culture of this, but this was common practice. This was commonplace. This is what they did. And you see, this wasn't just an Israelite thing. Pagan cultures sacrificed as well. And a lot of the tabernacle, temple type things that they used would be very similar to what they were doing. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Okay? But they would bring these different offerings. And so, just to kind of give you an idea of what these offerings were that they would bring. They'd bring the burnt offering, and this would be where the entire animal itself would be completely burned. And this represented to the person that it was their complete surrender to God. The animal bore the giver's sin and died in their place. Okay? You remember what we saw with Abraham and Isaac, kind of the same same thing that's going on. And, of course, Jesus. And as I'm saying this, please keep Jesus in the back of your mind. Like, it should be, oh, man, yeah, I'm picking up on this, okay? But that was the idea behind it, is that when they put their hands on there, th- this animal is giving its life for them to be right with God. But when this burnt offering, it was, everything was burned. There was nothing left. It was completely consumed. Because if you were able to take some back then it wasn't a complete offering. It wasn't complete surrender. The next one would be called the trespass offering or the sin and guilt offering. And you can see these laid out in Exodus, and I believe in Leviticus it talks about these more. Um, But when they did this one, a portion of the animal would actually be reserved for the priest. They would eat it. But this focused on paying for sins or this atonement for sins against God. But these guilt offerings in this part, would be addressed for sins against other people. So it was kind of a a, a little bit of both. And so they would have to make... Recompense with the person, whomever they sinned, if they stole something or whatever. But whenever the sin offering, the guilt offering, something like that, it had to do more so with the sin against somebody else, not necessarily a sin against God, although we always know that every sin is against God. You guys following me on that? It, it, it can get confusing, and I just want to make it kind of simple. The next one would be a peace offering. And so when someone would bring in this offering, they would participate in the eating of the animal. And this offering symbolized this fellowship and peace peace with God. And it was through, of course, the shedding of blood. But they would bring um, people around. They would have family members with them and things like that. So the priest would take some of the animal. The the uh, participant would take some of the animal. And they would have a, a mini feast with friends and family. But it was this idea that we're in peace with God. We're doing things with God. And then the last one would be was called the meal offering. So they'd bring grain. They'd bring flour. They'd bring loaves of bread, always unleavened. And a portion was burned um, up right there. But a, a, a the rest of it would be consumed by the priest. They would eat it. And this was always given in thankfulness. And bread represents stuff, and we'll talk about that later. But it was always in thankfulness. So a lot of these, you've got the burnt offering, which, which was the idea is that something had to be con- totally consumed and destroyed in order to make them right with God. And then you've got the sin and the trespass offering where it's like we're trying to get right with our fellow man. But the other ones were more so uh, because I love God, because I want to. You know, so that's what they would do. And so I just kind of picture that these priests out there slinging these animals up, doing this stuff, burning them, all of that kind of stuff. They would consume part of it uh, at different times depending on what it was. But there were strict rules and strict guidelines. I mean, everything had to be followed to a T. The next thing we get to is the brazen labor. Go ahead to the next one. This is a drawing. This is not an actual photo. Okay. But this is somewhat what we think it looked like. Now this was the second object that was in that courtyard. You'd go past the altar, and then you'd get to the brazen laver. Now this only had, the individual had nothing to do with this. This was only for the priest. Okay? But We don't know exactly what it looked like because it doesn't give exact measurements. This is kind of an artist rendition. Some of them don't have this bottom part. I think they probably would have had that bottom part, and I'll tell you why here in a moment. But we don't know exactly. But it would be full of water, living water, right? That's what we've talked about. And so here's what would happen is once... The sacrifice was done. They've done the sacrifice, and the individual is a part of that, so they could identify with the sacrifice. When it was over, the priest, who acted on behalf of them, would come over there to this. And after the sacrifice, the priest would wash his hands, and he would wash his feet in this bronze laver. Now, they say... That this was, And you see this in Scripture, that it was made up of bronze mirrors that were given by the Israelite women after they escaped from Egypt. you got to remember that when they left Egypt, they took a bunch of stuff with them. They were not poor folk. They had money. One of the things, like the golden calf that they worshipped after the Ten Commandments and all that, was made from the earring. The earring was a symbolic symbol of slavery. It was like ownership by the Egyptians. And so they took that out and melted that down. But, but I mean, even that... it was solid gold. So Egypt had wealth and Israel took whatever belonged to them. I guess I'm not even sure how all that worked out. But so that's where this came from. Now, these washings were ceremonially and they were cleansing the priests because they could not enter into the holy place, which we'll get to in a minute, but they could not go in there unless they followed these ceremonies because it was talking about purity, And that's what this got got to. There were two types of, of cleansings and there's two types of purity. I mean, when we talk about something that's common versus holy, you know, what did God say to Moses at the burning bush? Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. What makes something holy? It's sacred. It's special. Or if God just says this is what it is, right? If God says something is holy, then it is holy. And then you have common, which is basically everything else, the natural state of it. And then you have the idea that's pure, which means that it's clean. And there was two kinds of purity. There was a ritual purity and a moral purity. And then, of course, you have the impure, which is some sort of pollution. And so basically the holy place where God was is the intersection of where holy and pure meet. They had to be pure. Contact with something that was impure or an action done would contaminate this person or this object and they would become ritually impure and they have to clean themselves. Ceremonially cleanse. They talk about after a woman, after her monthly cycle, she would be unclean. she have to go away, have to do all these certain things. You could not touch a pig. You could not touch the body of a dead person. They were in clean. And, and so and in that, they had to ceremonially cleanse themselves. One term that you may have heard before is called a mikvah, which is basically where a Jewish bath sort of thing. Some have equated it to our baptism. It's not really the same, but you could kind of go along that ways because the, to us, water baptism represents something. To them, the mikvah was the ceremonial cleansing, and the priests would do this a lot of times in the temple prior to going and worshiping God. And so... The bottom line is is that they would do the sacrifice, then they would cleanse themselves before they entered in to the holy place. Now, I want to show you the next picture. Go ahead. This is kind of an overall viewpoint of what this is. You can see the fence with all the posts. You can see the gate. You can see this is big. You know, the other one doesn't really give a a good idea how, how big this is. You can see the common folk just kind of walking around here. Here's where they would do the sacrifices. Here's what they would do the washing. Up here, what you see is what they call the, the Shekinah glory, the cloud, the fire, the um, things like that. That is in the part of the most holy place. That is where God resides. He could not be where these people are. And remember I was telling you earlier how you'd see the camps here? And I'll go ahead and point something else. It says that they're on the north, south, east, and west. That means they're not northeast. Or northeast, I guess, would be over here. You know, they're not at the, they're only the four cardinal directions and that'll be important later i keep setting stuff up for later i'm going to give you something today i promise but the bottom line is this is that we can see i mean aren't you glad we are not in this system i mean can you imagine having to do this could you imagine being a priest this is all you did you know it would be horrible so this is what god said this is what you got to do now all of these things have precursors to christ right the priest could not go in without being clean. We're all kings and priests, you know, things like that. We enter into the presence of God because we're clean through Jesus, right? You guys follow me on that? I mean, I want you to pick up on this stuff as we're doing How these things point to Christ. Jesus washed us with His living water. Washed us with the power of the Word and, and we are made whole because of Him. the sacrifice He made at the altar for us, you know? And it talks about Him being a great high priest. We'll get there, but look at this tent. Go into the next picture. So this is kind of uh, an insight. You'll see four layers here. Okay, that's the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, table of showbread. That's likely the high priest, and then you've got the ark of the covenant. You can see how it's built. This thing is very sturdy. It was not unstable when we think of it, but the outside of it is actually kind of unique because it's made up of four layers. Why four layers? I don't know. Some try to make something out of the materials and stuff like that. There may be truth to that. I don't know. We can't prove it from Scripture, but there's definitely something there. But basically, the first layer, which would be here, is kind of this purple. He says, the linen of the finest quality. Okay? Whatever that happens to be. The second layer, kind of that brownish-yellow one, is made up of goat's hair. The third one, this red one, was made up of ram skin dyed red. And then the outside layer, we think, was made up of badger. They say it was badger, porpoise, or sea cow skin. Um, they don't know for sure because the Hebrew word that's used there is called tahash. It's difficult to translate. But they, what they bottom line is they believe it's some sort of sea animal. Okay, now they're in a desert. Where they got that, I don't know. They're not too far from a sea. I'm sure they could find one. But that's, that's what this is. And so that outside one would protect it, obviously, sea skin, you know. The skin of a a water animal is going to keep the rain and the elements and all that. But you can also see why it would be very dark in there. There's no windows. There's no skylights. There's no nothing. And so once you go into this holy place, so the priest enters in here. This is kind of the entrance. You get in there. There are the three distinct pieces of furniture, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. Now, the lampstand itself, which you see in Exodus 25, go ahead and, and pull that up is a menorah for what we consider menorah's sake okay they didn't call it a menorah we call it a menorah the idea of the menorah didn't come about to Hanukkah Um, but it is a solid piece of gold it's one object 75 pounds of gold it's big it's heavy it's approximately five feet tall and up here about three and a half feet wide it's good size now if you've ever met some Jewish folks, they're not that tall, so I doubt you know that's only going to hit his chin. He's probably five foot tall, but and they'd have to keep these things lit. They'd have three branches each coming off of the chef. So you got the one in the middle, and you got the three branches coming off of each side. Okay, each one had a cup, and that cup was shaped like an almond flower, and getting ready to bloom. And they would be filled with this very high quality olive oil that would be brought as offerings to the tabernacle. Remember, they brought their offerings there, their tithes and their off, things like that. They would bring them there to continue this operation to keep this thing. These lights had to burn 24-7. They could not go out. With all the layers on the outside of it, this is the only source of light. This is it. Remember what Jesus said, I am the light of the world. These are the lights that he's talking about. He's talking about that I am the light. I am the light giver. And This is, what, this is why I could never burn out. And there is something with Hanukkah, just so you know, about how they... Uh, uh, I can't remember who they were at war with, but something... Who was it? Yeah, Antioch. Yeah, it was basically the Magpies, But uh, they were at war and... Okay, yeah, that's right. So, um, But they, they couldn't get in there and do it, and they were afraid they only had enough olive oil for one day, and yet they burned for eight days. It was a supernatural thing. That is why they celebrate Hanukkah. That's what they call it, the eight crazy nights or whatever you want. I think that was Adam Sandler, actually, who said that. But, but, but I mean, it was the eight nights of Hanukkah. That's what it was, is that these, this thing did not burn out. They'd have to do this twice a day. They'd fill it in the morning. They'd fill it in the evening. And they have to keep them lit at all times. So that's that. Then you get to the table of showbread, which is the next one, which is this table. Okay, it's Again, it's made of acacia wood, which was a prevalent wood in that area. They didn't have oak. They didn't have walnut. They didn't have cherry. They had acacia wood. Now, God told them to use that. Is there something significant, symbolic in the wood? Yeah, maybe. But the bottom line is, is the area has lots of acacia wood. So it was three feet long and one and a half feet wide. So it wasn't really all that big. It sat about two feet off the ground. It'd be an oversized coffee table. And um, it had the rings in it, just like the, the, all their altars do for the poles. That way, if they have to move, they can move. Um, they would, a lot of times, this doesn't have, but they'd have cups that were made from solid gold sitting up there. And they would place 12 pieces of bread on it that represented the 12 tribes. This is another visual reminder of the covenant that God made with Israel. God promised them that He would be their God and they would be His people. Israel promised to be faithful to God and keep His commandments. Bread and the making of bread are very important metaphors in the Bible because in the Old Testament, people would seal these covenants with a meal. And this meal formalized the agreement and it bound them in a close relationship. And so every week during the Sabbath, the priest would replace this bread and they would simply eat it. It was dedicated for God's priests. They would eat this stuff. And so in doing what the priests were doing, we're representing that the 12 tribes of Israel were in covenant with God by having a covenant meal with God. Now we can look at this, something similar to our communion practice. It's similar in state, but this is something that we do. So the Israelites considered bread as life-giving and sustaining, but they understood that God is the ultimate source of bread and all of life. These were symbolic of god's provision for them okay but we say that they knew that but obviously they forget many times because they whine along the way and so you you have all of this you have this this table of showbread again and that they would do their thing they would eat this this would be stuff that was brought for the offerings by the people then you get to the altar of incense which is the next one okay this would be the high priest any priest could fill this thing okay any priest but the high priest is just shown here, and I'll explain why here in a minute. But this thing was one and a half feet long, and one and a half feet uh, high, and it was three feet tall or long, wide, however you want to say it. It wasn't very big, you know, a little bit taller. One and a half, I should say wide. It's a square. Okay, you see the poles? Same thing. Why? So they can move it when they have to. Um, they would. Any priest could come in. They could offer the incense, and most of the time, the incense would be accompanied. Sort of grain offering that was brought. It wasn't just straight incense. And so they had to burn incense twice a day, morning and evening, in connection with the kindling of the lamps that we talked about a little bit ago. And they would set the bread. Once a year, the high priest would. Come in, and he would offer a special sacrifice, and he'd bring a portion of his blood into the most holy place, which is we're going to go to here in a minute, and he would bring incense in this censer, and this is what you're seeing here. So he would fill this thing up with some of the incense, and then this is the veil. He's getting ready to go through that into the presence of God. Now, this is a big deal because, again, he can only do this one time a year. Now, let's talk about the high priest real quickly, okay? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this um, just because it's not what we're looking at. Go ahead and go to the next picture. And you can see some different photos of, of what's going on. Their outfit, what he's wearing, hugely significant. This would take an entire day by itself to talk about this because it's so important. You see these stones. You see, I mean, all of this, the stuff that he's wearing, it's, it's got a lot of symbology in it. I would encourage you to go look that up on your own. Um, but one of the things that we need to know about with the priestly line is that it came from the tribe of Eli, uh, Levi. All of them were Levites. The high priest came directly from the line of Aaron. You could not be a high priest unless you were born of the family of Aaron. The high priest was the ultimate mediator between God and the Israelites. Now, every other priest would act in that way as well. But he was by far and away the one that goes to God for the people. Okay? They could offer, um, only they could offer certain ceremonies throughout the year their main duties were assigned for the day of atonement he would help with the other sacrifices at times things like that but it was primarily for the day of atonement and the sacrifices and prayers given on that day could only be done by the high priest he had stricter purity laws that he had to follow and they were in charge of the priestly order altogether. i mean it is it's a big deal what he's doing and so, without getting into all the detail, just know that he, there's something significant about it. Now, Jesus said, I am your great high priest. He's the one that takes us into the presence of God. He's not only the one that takes us there, he's the reason we are there. It was his blood that he sacrificed. Go ahead and go to the next photo. Here you see, again, the high priest. You see the censer. This is kind of the overall picture of what's happening. Okay? He's getting ready to go in there. You see the Ark of the Tabernacle. You see these other things. Obviously, this is bigger than what's showing here. But the bottom line is that he is preparing himself. Um, if he did not do this right, he would die. The presence of, there can be no sin in the presence of God. And so what would happen is they would have some bells or something tied to him so they could hear him moving, and he'd have a rope tied to his foot. That way, if the, the bell stopped ringing, they'd pull him out. Okay? So go ahead and go to the next picture. Here you see the veil. And the veil is, is, is getting into the most holy place. The veil divided the two rooms, from the holy place to the most holy place. It's an easy way to remember them. Okay? Now it says that this was um, a large curtain made of fine twisted linen and costly blue scarlet and purple dye. They did not have what we have today, dyes and colors and things like that were a big deal. They cost a lot of money. It was a commodity, just kind of like salt as an example, something we take for granted was a big deal. It preserved food and it made food taste good. And On it was to be the representative of cherubim. And you can see this is something kind of on its knees. It looks kind of weird. Uh, It kind of looks like the old school Flash's helmet, if you really look at it that way. I never thought about that before. But anyway, um, if you remember, a cherubim is a type of angel. So it's just a cherub. It's a type of angel. They are, um, here you can see they're bowing down. They're worshiping God. They're covering their face. You can see all of that from stuff like that. Um, It had all these things hung on four pillars. Those are the pillars. Okay? So they were there. This veil was very thick. Multiple layers of fabric. They say that it was the thickness of a man's hand. Now, depending on the man... That's pretty thick. I have small bear paws. I'd say I'm a good inch or so. I mean, that's thick fabric. The one in the temple was even bigger. Okay? So that's kind of the veil. But then you get into the most holy place. Go into the next one. And you get to this. The Ark of the Covenant. What Indiana Jones was after. What he was looking for. Spent three movies trying to find it. I think. Anyway. But it's very unique of what this is. Because to us... This isn't a big deal. To them, this was everything. They would take this thing into battle if God told them to. The one time they took it and they weren't supposed to, they got decimated. And so it was the presence of God resided right here. Okay, The ark was the first item of the furniture that Moses built, that God told Moses to build after the tabernacle. The first thing he built, he didn't build anything else. He didn't build the altar. He built the Ark of the Covenant. Again, it's made with acacia wood, and it is covered with gold. The, how big it was and things like that, we don't actually know the exact size. But we can get a pretty good idea. The mercy seat, which is this thing that sits up on top of it. Do I have a separate picture of that? I don't know. I don't. Okay. This is the mercy seat, okay? This is basically what they called the throne of God. Um, this thing was... a. About four feet tall by, or four feet wide by two feet, something like that. Uh, it was made of solid gold. And on top of it had these two cherubims, again, facing one another. They're bowed down, facing one another. Their wings are covering their face. This is all, you know, symbolic of different things. But, but basically, God promised them to be present on this mercy seat. He said, I'll be there. And that was what you saw earlier with that cloud and the light shining out. That was the idea. I mean, they literally saw this stuff. And so, basically, the mercy seat was a somewhat of a portable throne, if you will, because it did get moved. you got to remember, God was the king of Israel. He was the ruler. It was a theocracy. It wasn't. They didn't get a, a, another king until later on when they begged, and that wasn't God's best for them. But this was his throne. He was the king, so this is the place where they went. Now, these two items are always together. They're not separate. They don't take this mercy seat off the ark. It was always together. There were three items that were inside of this ark. There was the stone tablets. There was a jar of manna. And there was Aaron's rod, which was budding. Aaron, if you remember from when, like, when they were coming, getting ready for the Exodus, his rod was used in many of the plagues. It wasn't just Moses. So the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, And Aaron's rod. Now, these are symbolic of something, and this is something that the Lord showed me is that when I was thinking about this several months ago, is that when we look at this, now we don't think of the the Ten Commandments, we don't think of what manna is or anything like that, and we don't care about Aaron's, we don't care what was in the ark because it's not anything to us. But to them, what did this stuff mean? And so the Ten Commandments could represent God's ways, how He did things, how He wanted things to be done. It represented His ways. The manna represents God's provision. Right? He provided for them the sustenance they needed, the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ, was inside of this, symbolically speaking. And then, of course, the staff represents God's power. Right? God's power that he used that staff. How did Moses split the Red Sea? He put his staff there. He hit the rock. Aaron's the same thing. A lot of the plagues, if you go back and study that out, they're him using his staff. God said, use Aaron's staff and do that. There's there. And it's budding, which means there's life in it. What happens when you cut a, a branch off of a tree? It dies. There's life in this, there's life in the power, and God is sitting on top of all of this. You can say it represents His holiness, you can say it represents Christ, you can say it rep- represents His redemption. See, all of these things are laying out, getting ready to paint a picture to that, that if they're cognizant of it, will point to the Messiah. We have the benefit of it. Remember what we call it? We call it hindsight. We know the beginning from the end in this. We can look back and say, oh, man, I can see that. But it's God's ways. It's God's provision. It's God's power. What are the things that Jesus promised? He said that I'm coming be holy for I am holy. Peter tells us that. He says that we are to walk in His ways and obey His commands and all the things that He tells us to do. We know that Jesus is the only one who gives life, and He is the one who sustains us. And He also said that I'm going to send one in and, 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 and Jerusalem, and when He comes upon you, you'll be baptized with power. I mean, all of these things are represented here inside of the Ark of the Covenant that we don't have any idea where it is. It would be cool if they found it, and that stuff's still in there, and that, that rod's still budding, I mean, and manna's not moldy. I mean, it would be cool. But all these things come together. How do we put the pieces together of how Jesus fulfilled all of these things? We go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read chapters 9 and chapter 10. I've got it up on the screen for you. We're almost done. Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. It says, Then indeed. Even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Now we've been talking about this and what they did and all of that. So keep that in the back of your mind. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, the holy of holy, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, we just talked about all that kind of stuff, right? Verse 6, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services, talking about the holy place where they would go in and do their things. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. Um, So he had to sacrifice for himself, and he also had to sacrifice for the people. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of reformation. What's he saying? All this stuff was symbolic. It had a time. He's getting to the point. But Christ. I love it when it says, but Christ. What does that mean? Is that all of this stuff was there, but Christ came to do something different. Came as a high priest of the good things to come, with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to the serving of the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promises of the, the internal inheritance. I could stop there. We could go and just preach all day long on that. Because the bottom line is that all this stuff that they had to do, Jesus fulfilled it. He came and did, went through all that. And it says it was with his blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats. If those were good enough, then Jesus never would have had to come. But it needed somebody who was perfect. He didn't have to sacrifice for himself. He is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect sacrificer. He took his blood into the most holy place. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity to the death of the testator. Think about our, our, um, uh, our will, our last will and testament. What happens? That thing does not enforce until after you die. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Talking about the old covenant, the one with Moses. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission. The blood had to be shed. Jesus said I came to make a new covenant. This is my testament and how does that testament get enforced? By his death. Verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, talking about what we just talked about, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now... Once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Can I get an amen? amen? It's good. This is what our Savior did for us he sacrificed himself for us he gave up his life for us we don't do this stuff it's not the blood of bulls and goats and all those ceremonies that they had to do do that Jesus came down and replaced all of that in a new and better way chapter 10 for the law having a shadow of good things to come what's the shadow in order to have a shadow there must be a shadow giver right of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, when, if these things could make them the way that Christ makes us, then they would have been able to quit a long time ago. For then would they have not ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away the sins. Every year on the Day of Atonement, they remember that they are not right with God. They are God's chosen, but that has nothing to do with salvation. They still needed a sacrifice. Verse 5, therefore, when he came into the world, he being Jesus, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. that he may establish the second, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away the sins. In other words, these sacrifices continued after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't quit. He's telling us right here, they continue to do this. But the one has already been given. Verse twelve. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, "This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days," says the Lord, "I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he has their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no." more now where this, there is sin there now where there is remission of these there is no longer an offering for sin why there's not an offering that has to be made it's already been offered therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that's huge that is his flesh what's the veil his flesh And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much that... So much the more as you see the day approaching, the day being when he returns. Verse 26: For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expect, expectation of judgment and fiery indignation will devour our adversaries. What is this talking about? When you've received that knowledge, don't go back to the way you were. Don't go back to the sacrifice. That's what he's talking about. He's talking to Jews here. He's saying, look, those sacrifices are all for naught. I'm giving you the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who sets people free, the one who makes them free from the bond of sin, from the bond of Satan, from the bond of hell, that he came here that we can live with him forever. And they say, I give you this, and you go back to that. Don't do it. There's no more sacrifice for sins. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is talking about if somebody under the Old Testament law committed a capital crime. It took two or three witnesses in order to bring conviction upon them for the death penalty. Essentially, it could not be just one of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be counterworthy who has trampled the son of god underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and again the lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living god but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my change and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and He who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back to perdition but of those who believe to the saving of the soul this is everything we just read in exodus in two chapters you see it's the combining of the old with the new it's looking at this and how did christ fulfill this how did he point to this if you remember last week i talked to you is if you read your old testament the jews look back to the exodus event this is the, the, the cornerstone, if you will, of everything that God did for them. He set them free for slavery and He sends them on this path into the promised land. Now compare that with Christ. Imagine, if you will, that as the Israelites come up on the Red Sea, what's going through their mind? We're dead. What do you think that the Egyptians thought? They're, oh, we got them now. There's nowhere to go. But what did God do? He came and He split the sea. He blinded them, he took the wheels off their chariots, and he allowed his people to go through. Picture Jesus. You see, when Jesus went up on the cross, I guarantee you the enemy thinks we got him now. But what did he do? He died for our sins and he split the veil of the temple that separated man from God. And now we are made one with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The, The Israelites look back to the Exodus, we look back to the cross. But the cross is not where it stopped. The cross is where the enemy screwed up. You see, He killed the one who He had no right to. Everybody else, He has a right to death because we sin, but Jesus never sinned. He was perfect in all righteousness. And so when he willingly laid down his life, because no man could take it, he did that. And at his death, the New Testament begins. The testament of the church, the birth of the church is getting ready to take place because now man and God can live in communion together. He said that we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We look back at the cross as how God paid the price, but we look at the resurrection of where God's power shows up and His power and His might to overcome all the works of the enemy. It says that Jesus made a show of them openly. It just talked about because of your faith, you've been mocked, you've been tried, and all of this stuff. It is God who set us free. Amen. It's the power of God. When we read the Old Testament, we should be looking, Jesus, how did you do it? How did you fulfill it? Because that's what we look at. We study the Exodus. We study the the tabernacle and we look at this stuff because we want to understand what they were thinking, what they were going through. But ultimately, we don't live there. By a new and powerful way, a higher way, of God's way. It's God's way. It's the reason He died. Was so that we could be in fellowship with Him. You see, too many people, especially in this country, and it's heartbreaking because Christianity is no longer what it once was. Christianity has lost its meaning. But a follower of the way, a follower of Jesus has never changed. A disciple of Christ has never changed. People want to come to God as they are and leave as they came. They're looking for a way. Of, oh, I don't want to go to hell. Well, good, nobody wants to go to hell. I have a family member that I talked to not long ago who's never given his life to Christ, and I pray for him every day. And we're in the car one, you know, this is probably a month or so ago, and he says, you know, I I mean, I love God. I believe in God, and this is what I said to him. I said, the demons believe in God, and they tremble. That doesn't make you right with God. There's one way. We are saved by grace, It's through faith in Jesus Christ that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with the heart that we believe and with the mouth that we confess. In other words, we're standing up for the God who stood up for us, who took the beating and the mocking and all the stuff for us. We stand up and say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you.